We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board, while Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Today is the first full day of summer. Time for a wardrobe change. Here's Scott Thompson. Oh, wow. In case you're uh, unaware, of the House of Commons, the Parliament, its uh, they're done for the summer. They adjourned uh, earlier after uh, whipping through some stuff last night. And, and, you know, maybe Canadians are looking at this a couple of different ways. Uh, thank God it's over and we can have some peace over the summer. Or, hey, uh, what about the public inquiry? Uh, what about that whole Bernardo thing with the transfer? What like It just seems that there's all these pots boiling on the stove. And uh, we're shutting her down, which, um, you know, where are these issues coming out the other end? Let's bring in Pierre Polyevra, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, MP for Carleton, and here now. Pierre, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Pierre, where does this leave everything, like the public inquiry, like the Bernardo stuff? There's a lot of, it seems like, as I said, pots boiling on the stove here uh, that now have to, what, sit through the summer? That's right. This is incompetence we can't afford. Uh, Here we are, Justin Trudeau, not getting us any answers about Paul Bernardo, who got transferred from out of a maximum security penitentiary to more comfort and freedom, with more access to uh, other human beings, where he poses a greater risk and a greater danger. Uh, We offered to pass a law that would reverse Trudeau's earlier soft on murderers legislation and require every mass murderer to stay in max security prisons. Trudeau shut the place down before passing that law. Now we're finding that numerous other families have been informed Hmm. that murderers who killed their loved ones are also being liberated from maximum security into more freedom in uh, medium security prisons. And uh, this all could have been prevented if Trudeau just passed the law that a Niagara MP, Tony Baldinelli, common sense conservative, had proposed before Trudeau left for vacation. So uh, same thing with public inquiry. Where do all of these, where does all this sit once things come back? I mean, does he just turn the stove back up on uh, again and off we go? Uh, or do we hope to find solutions between now and then? We hope to find solutions. That's why I've told uh, Justin Trudeau, look, you confirm there will be a public inquiry. We'll offer you some independent, nonpartisan names that are agreeable to all parties. Someone who's fair, that will get the facts and find out why and how Beijing interfered in multiple elections to help Trudeau win elections and prevent it from ever happening again. Uh, Abacus poll out uh, a, a while ago talking about how over 80% of Canadians want change. 30% don't know what, over 30% don't know what they're going to do, who they're going to vote for. Some suggest a low turnout because of this. As we've talked before, many say it's yours to lose. How do you unite? How do you, how do you get more people on board? Well, we need to turn the hurt that Trudeau has caused into the hope Canadians need. After eight years of Justin Trudeau, life costs more. Work doesn't pay. Housing costs have doubled. Crime, chaos, drugs and disorder are common in our streets. We need common sense to solve these problems. And I'll do that by I'll bring home lower prices by eliminating the carbon tax to lower gas, heat, and grocery bills by balancing the budget to bring down inflation and interest rates. We'll bring home powerful paychecks with lower income taxes that reward hard work. And by removing government gatekeepers so that we can build, build more homes that people can afford, build more natural resource projects so that we're more self-reliant here in our country. In other words, bring home our money, our jobs, and our future to this country. That's the common sense of the common people. Now we need to bring it home. Uh, Many times the Liberals will blow off the Conservatives and say they have no climate plan whenever you're critical of theirs, whether it's carbon tax, what have you. Uh, What do you say to those that say you guys don't have a climate uh, plan? Well, first of all, Justin Trudeau doesn't have a climate plan. He has a tax plan that isn't working. He's already brought in a 14 cent a litre carbon tax that he wants to raise to 61 cents a litre. 
That's a 300% increase. Imagine that will, that, that will do to your gas bill, to your home heating bill, and you tax the farmer's fuel, you're going to tax the food you, that you eat, and that will make life more expensive for people who are already skipping meals. So we don't need a tax plan. We need a real environmental plan. My plan is this. One, technology and not taxes. I will approve tidal wave projects in eastern Canada so that Nova Scotia can get off coal and get onto tidal power. I'll approve faster uh, process to, to get nuclear energy onto the grid in western Canada and in New Brunswick. That's emissions-free nuclear power. I'll also speed up mining permits so that we can bring the electrification minerals to the surface. It takes 25 years to get a mining permit in Canada under Trudeau. And that's why we have to bring in our electric car batteries from coal-burning China. Why don't we bring home that production to Canada and mine that material here by speeding up mining permits? I will green light green projects like that. And finally, let's green light um, hydroelectricity in Quebec. They need to double their power from emissions-free hydroelectricity there. So in other words, instead of raising the cost of traditional energy that Canadians still need, as Trudeau proposes, why don't we lower the cost of carbon-free alternatives? That's a real plan to bring down prices and emissions. Pierre Polyevra with us, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, MP for Carleton and the House now uh, off for the summer. Pierre, thanks so much for the time. Uh, much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. Let's bring it home. Here we go again. We've had this discussion before with Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Taxpayers paying 61 grand for hotel rooms so the Prime Minister could attend a celebrity-studded two-day summit in New York City. Newly released documents obtained by the National Post reveal. Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director with us now. Franco, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. So before we get to this, Franco, do we, we, we remember the, uh, the pricey hotel room for the Queens? Um, I guess it was funeral where, uh, the room along the Thames, $6,000 a night. Uh, do we, did we find out what the hotel room cost for King Charles and, uh, the big party they had for his coronation? No, I don't think we have yet. However, we do have some access to information requests in. So stay tuned. Uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation will be releasing those documents as soon as we get them. So hopefully uh, not too long and we'll know those costs exactly. All right. So what do you have here uh, held in New York City on April 27th and 28th, a Global Citizen Now Summit? Um, you know, again, we've had this conversation playing devil's advocate, Franco. You know, people got to come. You got to put them in hotel rooms. What's the deal? What's the deal here? Okay, let me get to that devil's advocate, but let me uh, respond in a second. But let me just lay the groundwork here. Okay, folks, we spent $61,000 on hotel rooms in Manhattan so Trudeau and a band of bureaucrats can go to a summit to tackle poverty. To hear that, folks, when you get into government, in the federal government, this is how they apparently think you fight poverty. You go on an international trip, you bring a band of bureaucrats, you bill taxpayers tens of thousands of dollars, then you smile for the camera and pose with a bunch of celebrities like Wolverine. It sounds like fun, but I don't think we lifted too many people out of poverty. Now, the frustrating things here is, is one, the cost, right? $61,000, and that's just for hotel rooms. That doesn't include meals. That doesn't include flights. It doesn't include any other types of expenses. Uh, but the second frustrating thing here is the human element. I know Canadians uh, would would donate across this country tens of thousands of dollars to actually help people who are in need. Well, I guess the question here is like how many sandwiches, how many soups, how much water could we purchase and hand out to people who are in need for $61,000? Uh, again, Franco, I'll, I'm, I'm defending here. If you break that down, I understand that that's what, five something uh, a night in hotel rooms in New York City, which, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that's pretty expensive and that seems kind of reasonable for um, that city and such. Uh, what about 14 going? Do those all need to go? What do we learn from these things? Okay, so fair enough to play devil's advocate. I appreciate that. There's two issues with that, however. Uh, number one is the total amount of people that we sent, right? Uh, we ended up booking 39 rooms, 39 rooms for two mm. nights. Why are we sending 39 bureaucrats to go to the summit? Right. I, I failed to I failed to believe that sixty one thousand dollars 
I fail to believe that the government couldn't attend this anti-poverty summit for less than $61,000. And again, $61,000 is just the bill for hotel rooms. But the second issue here, and I think this is the bigger issue, is that this is a clear rule in the government now. It's not the exception, right? This isn't the first time that we've seen the government rack up these huge expenses overseas. I have many expenses off the top of my head, but let's just go to the Queen's funeral where you had Trudeau staying in a $6,000 per night hotel room. We sent a huge delegation there as well. And the total hotel trip uh, cost us $400,000 just for the Queen's funeral in London, England. I mean, just Hmm. for hotels at the Queen's funeral is $400,000. And now we're learning of yet another trip where we're seeing a huge hotel bill. And I can only imagine what the total cost of this trip to the taxpayer was. Um, Again, I'll come at it from this direction, uh, Franco. Are we learning anything there? I mean, you know, if they they all meet there and, and they get some great ideas and bring that home, isn't that worth it? Isn't that money well spent? Well, maybe. What value are we getting for this? The government refuses to say. I mean, we know that they love spending buckets of cash flying around the world, but it's not clear what value taxpayers are getting. And let me just redouble to the point of why are we sending 39 people here? You know, it's becoming more clear to me that one of the biggest perks in government is not actually doing the work of taxpayers, but getting to jet around the country or jet around countries going to these international conferences. And let me just go back to the fact that this is becoming the rule, not the exception. To the Middle East trip that happened last year where the governor general went with 29 other people to the Middle East, to Dubai, for Expo 2020. We paid for all all of that. The entire trip cost more than a million dollars. But then let's also go to COP26, which was a climate conference in Glasgow, Scotland, where we sent the largest delegation of any G7 country, including the host nation. So it's not like I can understand where these trips might have value for taxpayer if you're sending a couple people. But we continually to go above and beyond sending as many bureaucrats as possible and racking up as big of a tab for taxpayers as as really can be imagined. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, uh, talking about the amount of money government spends on trips and such while we wait to see what the bill is for uh, King Charles's coronation. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've been talking a lot over, I guess, post-pandemic price of food and obviously uh, the grocers uh, doing very, very well. Ontario, and now we hear the Ontario Superior, uh, Superior Court uh, fined Canada Bread $50 million on Wednesday after it pled guilty to price fixing. It's the highest price fixing fine in Canada ever. I believe the maximum uh, as well, according to the Competition Bureau of Canada, uh, pleading guilty to four counts of price fixing under the Competition Act, admitting that it had arranged with Weston Foods, a competitor, to increase the prices of various breaded products. Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us. I think he predicted this. Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, Dalhousie University, and here now. Sylvain, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am well. I'm, I feel better than, you know, can of <laughs> <Well>, bread. <laughs> you know, we talked about this a few days ago, and you penned an article, and you thought something was coming down, something was going on. Is this obviously what you were speaking of? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I was sharing what I could share at the time, and uh, I had the pleasure to talk to uh, some folks uh, who do work with uh, uh, Grupo Bimbo, uh, keeping me aware of what was going on. Uh, I, I think it's actually good. It may not sound like good news for consumers, but it is good news, I think. Uh, you have this Mexican giant which bought Canada Bread in 2014 doing the right thing. Uh, it, it's, it, it's accepting responsibility for what happened. Uh, they weren't around when it happened. Uh, they're paying this huge fine. And they're considering legal actions against Maple Leaf Foods, uh, the company who sold Canada Bread to them. So you're basically seeing Mexico or a Mexican company telling Canada mm. to get its act together. And paying the fine. So where will, do you think, Maple Leaf, where will that end up? Well, this is the th- big thing. So a lot, of, a lot of the media has been focused on the $50 million. My focus is certainly on Michael McCain and Maple Leaf Foods because – 
they were around, of course, uh, during yeah. this uh, scandal. Um, Canada Bread is now uh, admitting guilt. But also Maple Leaf Foods is involved with meat. And, and they are, there is some speculation that meat actually mm. uh, has some issues. There are some issues around pricing. Uh, as a lab, we do monitor prices quite closely. And, and there are times where when we, we can't explain what's going on with, with prices. And so I, I think there's going to be a lot of questions being asked to, to uh, Michael McCain, who's actually retiring next year. Uh, and uh, and so, but there's there's really some momentum here. Uh, there's more pressure on the remaining four grocers who have not uh, done anything. They've denied everything. Uh, that would include Empire Sobe's, um, uh, Metro, uh, Giant Tiger, and and Walmart. So I don't know exactly what they'll do, but my guess is that the pressure is actually much higher now. So, uh, as you mentioned, Maple Leaf Foods running Canada Bread at that time uh, and then sold. Uh, obviously, this could draw more attention to Maple Leaf for its other industries. Uh, I guess that's yep. what you, you suggested. Uh, what about the sale of uh, Canada Bread from Maple Leaf to this Mexican company? Why that? Why is the timing suspect in any way? Well, it's, it happened in 2014, the year before blah blah disclosed and so uh there was there's lots going on now uh canada bread or uh, grupo bimbo is accusing uh maple leaf foods of not uh, of not disclosing anything and uh and it's i don't know if it's true or not but uh when you buy a company like that uh due diligences are are quite critical mm. uh but you wouldn't think coming from mexico that something like this would happen in canada I mean, that's basically yeah. – so you kind of have to give some credit to <laughs> Grupo Bimbo investing in Canada. Yeah. I mean, if if you reverse roles, if a Canadian company invests in Mexico, my guess is that yeah. accounts would actually go through books several times before completing an acquisition. So it's, it's, it's quite embarrassing not only for the food industry in Canada but for Canada as a whole. So where was Weston on all of this? Because this was between Canada Bread and Weston that this was going on. Where were they? How did they end up in all of this? Well, Weston is off the hook. So they got immunity along with Loblaw. Uh, at the time, Loblaw did own, or the Western Group did own Western Bakeries. It's now been sold. Uh, it's been since sold to FB Brands a few years ago. And why uh, immunity? Why immunity, Sylvan? Because they were considered whistleblowers, essentially. Mm, okay. That's the deal yeah. they made in 2015. Right. And there so that's why they got that and they did that. So for any other company coming forward uh, with an admission, they will have to pay a fine, which is exactly what happened yesterday. So how does this change this industry moving forward? And we've talked about this a lot, Sylvan, post-pandemic. Uh, you're still talking about 07 to, 0, uh, or 07 to 11 here. What about yeah. post-pandemic? Uh, is there still investigation going on there? That's when we saw record profits and people really starting to pay attention to this. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, I think Canadians have every right to be, uh, to be concerned about what's happening right now. Uh, of course, a lot of people are, are linking this situation with food inflation and greedflation. I, I actually don't uh, agree with that. They're two very different things. One has to do with a global phenomena, uh, which hmm. uh, the food industry in Canada has a little control over of. But I do, I do think we need to recognize that the Canadian food industry has a price-fixing problem. Uh, I mean, that's that's because I mean, th there are several cases now that uh, it, beyond bread that really gets people to uh, is getting people to scratch their heads like the blackout period in the fall when right. grocers are asking vendors to to not increase prices all at the same time. That's that's up. I'm sorry, but that's upstream collusion. I remember and, you uh, saying that on the show, Sylvan, that that was, yeah. so, uh, you know, in fact, a form of collusion. So uh, with this and all the attention that's being drawn, you said other companies still waiting in the wings to see what happens. Are we seeing that shift in the food industry that you're talking about? Will I we? don't know. I, I don't know. I hope. So next week, the Commission Bureau is releasing its study on the food industry. 
Uh, and let's see what happens then. Uh, maybe uh, maybe the food the, the Coffee's Beer will offer Canadians a roadmap to to a better place. Right now, I don't think we're in a good place. Uh, consumer trust is at likely at an all time low. Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, commenting on Canada Bread's fine $50 million. Could there be more on the way? Sylvain, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. In case you haven't heard, uh, Coast Guard holding a news conference earlier on today. Uh, this morning reported they reporting that they had found a debris field uh, relatively close to the Titanic wreckage, about 1,600 feet, uh, then confirming in the news conference earlier this afternoon that, in fact, the debris was from the uh, Titan sub, Titan submersible that uh, was carrying those people down to view the Titanic, tail cone, various pieces lying there, uh, signaling a catastrophic implosion. Uh, so this could have all been over for them uh, when they lost contact an hour and 45 minutes in as we were all uh, conscious and aware of of the 90 hours of air that was in the sub uh, that could all have been for naught uh, looking like this uh, it, it did implode um, just about 1600 feet from the Titanic. Uh, what's interesting about this is the reaction on social media. Uh, this captivates the world much like the uh, Chilean mine disaster and such people watching from all over. Uh, and similar to watching rich people go up into space, I guess, uh, a lot are saying uh, different points. Number one, you shouldn't be going down there because it's a mass grave and you shouldn't be using this like it's Disneyland. And number two, uh, that's what the rich people get for thinking that, you know, they're just above everybody else and can do this without uh, or with just assuming, I guess, that this is as safe as uh, getting on an Air Canada jet and heading off to Florida. Let's talk to Alyssa Freeman about that reaction, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Have you noticed on social media different reactions to this? Uh, you know, I mean, we're obviously capti- captivated. It's, it's, it's a rescue story, but people are kind of cynical because they're rich. I think that it started off with a lot of cynicism, um, Scott. And I think you're 110% right. People are thinking, well, you have nothing better to do with your money. You have $250,000 lying around. You're going to go into some sort of like sardine can as big as a minivan. Uh, it's called a submersible. And you're going to go see the the Titanic. So, as as much as people were sort of you know deriding these people, I have to tell you that the world was captivated. So no matter what you thought of billionaires going de- into the depths of the ocean, this was an absolutely captivating story for the past four days from the from the moment that they couldn't find them. So I mean there there is some sort of socioeconomic undertone that you know. They can do that and I cannot. But now if you look at Twitter and the one thing that I do when I ever I look at these things is, you know, what's trending. And I'll tell you what's trending now in Canada, at least, is rest in peace. And of course, when mm. you go and look at that, there's 53,000 tweets and it's all obviously about what, you know, the aftermath of the submersible. And then you go down the list and then there's another under the word tragic is another 34,000 tweets. And that's just now. Right. That's just now the story officially broke at about 305 uh, p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, you know what? It, it, it just goes to show you that the tide of sentiment can turn on a dime in these cases. Mm. At one point, you're thinking, oh, you know what? To heck with the rich. You know, I, I don't care about these people. We have people who are crossing, uh, running away from uh, war-torn countries and are dying in the seas of overcrowded boats. And yet all we're doing is putting every resource that we can find from the Army, the Navy, the Coast Guard, from Canada, yeah. from the U.S., from France, in order to help you know, these five guys in a submersible. submersible. So there was a lot of a, a socioeconomic um, narrative undertone there, Scott. Uh, and as you touched on, a lot of comment, who's paying for this? Who's going to cover the cost of this? Who's how, how you know? Uh, so again, it's like, you know, an ambulance takes you to the hospital and then you get charged for the ambulance. Um, is this very similar to the billionaires in space? Uh, I think it is very similar, except that the billionaires made it back 
alive uh, from yeah. space and the ones who went uh, into the, into the depths of the ocean um did not and you know what's interesting about this is that there's a couple new narratives you know number one 111 years after the titanic you know took all those souls it's still taking souls uh sure. away um you know the other thing that is interesting is all the infographs that are coming out so you know they're showing sort of how deep uh, a whale swims how deep a squid uh, swims mm-hmm. and then how deep this submersible may have been which was uh ab- absolutely unfathomable how deep it was um I, I i think that there is this negative undertone of you know People who have a lot of money get to do what they want and they get to do it to the extreme. So therefore, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. But you know what? We're all human, Scott. <laughs> whether we do well in life or whether we're struggling in life, you know, we still have our wishes. We still have our hopes. We still have our dreams. And in this case, this was the the dreams of these uh, particular explorers who happen to have a lot of money. So if you took away the, you know, the money quotient of this, it's hard to say that anybody really deserves to die, whether they're Mm. rich or poor. Good point. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Obviously, lots of chatter in a post-pandemic world about homeless and the homeless situation, which is, you know, we're pretty much seeing it across the country in various cities, uh, including here in Hamilton. And as Hamilton searches for its own steps to help ease the situation, uh, we look at what's been going on in other municipalities. Barrie making headlines for a proposed law, uh, which has come under a lot of scrutiny and controversy. And to talk more about all of this, Sawyer Bogdan is with us, reporter, Global News and Barry and on with us now. Sawyer, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me. So, Sawyer, explain what is going on, what has been going on in Barry and and what the reaction has been to this. Yeah, so there, uh, the city was proposing changes to a pre-existing bylaw, bylaw 2004-142, and Basically, they were looking to prohibit um, people and charities from distributing items, including food, clothing, tents, and tarps, among other goods, um, to people on public property, um, which kind of encompasses a lot of places in the city when you include parks and streets and every which way around it. Um, So that's what they were hoping to do to, I guess, um, dissuade people from you know, congregating in areas where kids play like parks or splash pads and, you know, trying to encourage them to go to the agencies themselves. Um, So that's what was proposed. Today, we're seeing um, them backtracking a lot on that. One of the main agencies that actually has a um, outreach van that goes around the city each day providing food and other supports um, said, you know what, we won't do the stop downtown anymore. We'll move down by the waterfront we'll move it two blocks up is that okay with you guys and the city said yes and they're kind of using that um today as a way of saying well that's all we wanted uh, you know the bylaw didn't get voted in last night they said let's send it back to staff for review because the agency said that and a lot of conversations that i had today uh was around people saying well you know we really just didn't want it in along the waterfront and that that's all we really wanted but it seems like there's a lot more issues at play if we were in putting a bylaw that restricts all of this so um is this involving encampments or just individuals who are in public areas and basically you're saying that the public can't go on you know often you see people uh with a hat out or wherever and people will give them money or food or what have you that's that it would not be allowed under this bylaw is that accurate yeah, so it wasn't specifically to encampments, though they were, right. they, part of it was they didn't want people obviously setting up tents or tarps right. on public property. That was an aspect of it. Um, they put like some pretty big restrictions there. So encampments is a part to it, but really the thing that got people upset was um, the charitable aspect of it. Yeah. Agencies that help people who are experiencing homeless usually go to where those people are at and congregate to try and provide them with services and yeah just people if you're passing somebody on the street and you wanted to if it was you know on city property if you wanted to give them a snack bar or a bottle of water that's what this bylaw was saying it was going to do but ultimately last night i think because of the controversy around it the city said we need to take 
a couple more looks at this because it was bringing up a lot of questions of if it violated the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And that's what a lot of legal experts were saying yesterday. So the city is having it re-looked at by city staff, and then they'll come back with a new proposal at some point. So this is not just necessarily Good Samaritans that are helping out somebody who's on the street. Uh, this is also specifically charities that may come around with a soup kitchen of some sort or try to help them and hand food out or what have you. Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. So they're under the previous bylaw, there was an exemption um, for people providing the for people, you know, helping and not selling sure. items. But, you know, here's some food, here's some right. water, here's some, you know, other like health resources. Uh, but under this bylaw, what would have happened if it went into place is charities would not be able to do that on city property um, or in public spaces. They could do it on private property still. Um, but yeah, that's the main the main point that had everybody uh, pretty upset. So um, obviously, once this was announced, public outcry, uh, what happens moving forward with this? Where does it stand now? It's kind of in limbo. The city, um, I think, during the meeting was really trying to backtrack. Um, yesterday, the one of the main organizations in Barrie, the Busby Center, who does the outreach van, they put out a statement saying, listen, we won't, we'll move the stop up two blocks up so it's not right on the waterfront where you don't want it. Right. Um, like two streets up, it's still in downtown. And then after that, everybody seemed to kind of backtrack a bit um and today they're trying i i don't want to say downplaying but they are trying to downplay the issue i think a little bit and saying you know that's all we wanted but that's not really all they wanted because if it was a matter of just one agency not holding this like it speaks to a larger issue i think because of all of the public backlash we saw and a number of legal experts coming out yesterday and saying this is how we say this bylaw violates the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I think the city's really trying to find a way out of it. And that's part of why we're seeing them send it back to staff. And, you know, we kind of just have to wait and see at this point what staff comes back with, what changes are made to it. Is it going to be drastic changes that addresses all of people's issues? Or are there still going to be things in there that restrict people's freedom of rights? Uh, are encampments an issue, Sawyer, in Barrie at this time? They are an issue, and I think they're an issue um, in most communities of that size, not unlike yeah. Hamilton as well. Um, we're seeing unprecedented issues around homelessness and unprecedented numbers of people experiencing homelessness. I spoke to agencies today uh, about the situation that we're experiencing, and they said just due to affordability, it's driving more people to not have a home due to mm-hmm. rising rent prices. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's, it seems to be an issue that's happening everywhere and doesn't necessarily have one fix, um, but it's an issue that we, we do need to address. Wow, it's uh, going to be fascinating to see where this goes. You know what came to my mind, Sawyer, is don't feed the wildlife, don't see, feed the birds, don't feed. It's like, my God, these people are human beings. Uh, incredible. All right, Sawyer Bogdan with us, uh, reporter, Global News in Barrie on what is going on up there. Sawyer, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You might remember that, uh, well, let me say this first. The RCMP admitted Wednesday that it was wrong for the service to deny an access to information request to a democracy watchdog group in May, saying that the investigation into the interference of senior liberals in the prosecution of the SNC-Lavalin affair, obstruction of uh, justice, there was an ongoing investigation. So they sent this information to Duff Conacher, and a lot of it redacted, saying it's still under investigation. And then hours later, uh, no, no, there's no investigation here. And uh, once again, another case of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. We also heard stories earlier where the public service is purposely making it very difficult for uh, members of opposition to get information uh, from or on various issues that they're speaking of, and the Speaker of the House making comments on that. Let's bring in Robin Dooley. Little member of the Globe and Mail's investigative team, two-time winner of Canada's Michener Award, and part of the Globe and Mail's ongoing Secret Canada project, which takes on the broken uh, freedom of information system. Robin is with us now. Robin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, yeah, thank you. 
So your thoughts so far so good. Your thoughts on uh, what has happened with the RCMP here? Is there is this just a default position for, you know, redacting information? Oh, it's still under investigation. Or is this really the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing? In other words, the investigation was over in January, but nobody seemed to know about it. What is this bad communication or is this a default position? This, uh, that whole kind of like dust up was so interesting and so telling about how completely messed up access information is in Canada. You have an issue that is so important, the SNC-Lavalin investigation, just a massive political scandal. The RCMP is asked through this request, uh, FOI, in case your listeners don't know, is the formal process by which citizens and, well, anyone really, can access public records for the institutions that they fund through their tax dollars, the people that they elect to lead, um, the bureaucrats who are paid by tax dollars to run things. You can see how these things work. The records are yours. Democracy Watch files this FOI with the RCMP to understand what happened with the SNC-Lavalin investigation. And they get a request after you know nearly a year of waiting. They get a, um, a response in May saying, we can't provide these records because the issue is still under, is under investigation. This is obviously a huge news story. The RCMP is investigating the you know, allegations of political interference with the SNC-Lavalin prosecution. Um, so they publish, they publish this. They're like, this is the goods. We've got it. And then the RCMP says, oh, actually, we're not investigating them. So which is it here? Hmm. Uh, we wrote about it. The Globe, um, the RCMP told the Globe that the RCM or the uh, FOI coordinator had been mistaken, that, that it was incorrect, that the, there wasn't an investigation happening. So I think this is just really important because it just shows, you know, uh, one, the RCMP, so the, this investigation apparently ended in January. They should have just come out and said the investigation's over and released the records related to it. It's a matter of huge public interest. That's my next que- that's my next question, Robin. Why wouldn't they have announced, okay, back in January, nothing to see here, it's over. Why would they have not e- at least announced that exactly. they were complete? Exactly, because this country is completely broken when it comes to transparency from government. And I re- like the whole point of the Secret Canada Project is to really bring this issue to forefront. And on one hand, it sounds super boring, right? Freedom of information. But mm. guys, this is like, we're talking foundation of democracy stuff. We are talking, it's your right to know, the people's information. You know, in the United States, this just would have been public. They would have had a press conference. They would have said it. They would have posted the documents online. In Canada, you have this advocacy group finally just kind of on their own following up to see what happens. And they're told, oh, it's it's some incorrect information as a way to not release the records. And what's Mm. really interesting is that, you know, even if this is just an administrative flub, huge issue of access to, um, you know, government accountability, the RCMP says it needs three months to provide the records, right? So it's like, this just shows how low on the priority list being transparent to citizens is in this country. And that's what we're really at the Globe trying to get everybody to wake up to and say, this is enough. We're not taking it anymore. What about the Speaker of the House speaking out uh, a few days ago uh, in regard to opposition members asking for questions? And, And his allegation was that people within the civil service were making it difficult for this to happen. Rather than being forthright and just transparent and doing basically doing their job, they're sort of making decisions. You know, what I can say is that, you know, so we did this big investigation of Secret Canada. We interviewed hundreds of people who work in the public service, who are working the FOI offices, who've been elected to government, who are frequent users of the system. And and it's this like confluence of, of bad that has created the situation that we're in right now. And at the root of it is... The law is wishy-washy. There are no consequences for breaking it. And there are huge consequences for accidentally releasing something that you shouldn't. So especially when you factor in, you know, public service jobs, union jobs, it's, um, you know, there's very little incentive to take risk. And there's very little incentive to go against this culture in Canada that is, you know, trust us. Uh, You don't need to see we'll we're gonna we're gonna tell you what you need to know and so this just permeates every aspect of 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 the of you know it's not just with foi that's a huge thing it's also with the court system it's with 
it, like it's with government yeah. contracts. It's just everything. So yes, that that makes sense, and it's it's pervasive. Robin Doolittle with us, member of the Globe and Mail's investigative team, two-time winner of Canada's Michener Award, part of the Globe and Mail's ongoing Secret Canada project, which takes on the broken uh, freedom of information system. It seems we haven't seen a lot of transparency later, uh, lately, and the left hand doesn't appear to know what the right is doing. Robin, as always, thanks for the time. Good luck. Uh, great work. Thank you. Bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots going on in, uh, in, and many would say this was a pretty difficult uh, session for uh, the Liberals through this spring sitting of the House of Commons. Lots of... Uh, Lots of stuff going on and lots of distractions. Not sure what got accomplished, but uh, certainly lots of news. Uh, the House of Commons rising for the summer overnight uh, after all parties agree to end a political intent spring sitting a few days earlier. What about the public inquiry? What about Paul Bernardo? What about the ongoing communications issues? Haven't we left some pots burning on the stove now? Uh, let's bring in Andrew McDougall, Assistant Professor in Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto, and here now. Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Always a pleasure. So how do we agree to do all of this when there's so, it seems like, as I use the example, the analogy, there's lots of boiling pots on the stove. How can we walk away from this? There are lots of boiling pots on the uh, on the stove, but this is uh, this is the traditional summer break. The, the the parliament does this every year. This is expected. It was supposed to break on Friday. That it came to an agreement to do it a couple of days early. Uh, so I mean, this, there's nothing particularly unexpected about this. But the political world is going to keep going whether your parliament is sitting or not. So it's not like these stories are going to go anywhere. It just means that parliament isn't going to be uh, be sitting right now. But I'm I'm certain that these are going to continue to develop over the summer months what are we going to see on the issue of a public inquiry or even the the bernardo situation i mean well are, are, is the government hoping that these things kind of simmer down over the course of the summer and we come back in the fall they won't be top of mind uh, but as you said i think i think these seeds have been planted and are growing quite uh, quite uh, a lot where do you see this going over the course of the summer Oh, absolutely. I'm sure the liberals would love it if, if some of these stories would calm down a little bit over the summer. And uh, there's a sense that the summer is a little bit of the, the silly season, that people are not paying as close attention to things as they do at other times in, during the year. Uh, you know, we very, very rarely, if ever, have summer elections, for example, uh, because there's a, a sense that people are just not uh, as tuned in. And I think, you know, probably they're sort of hoping that maybe people will be a little bit distracted by their vacations. Um, but there's no guarantee that that at all is going to happen. And these stories are very much going to going to be remain in the headlines going forward. Uh, I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, we're still waiting to find out what happens if there's going to be a public inquiry. I think uh, you know those uh, calls have not really diminished much, uh, and you know you've seen some movement uh, in some of the language that you know from we don't need this or we have a special rapporteur to perhaps it's within the realm of possibility so there might be something developing there i'm sure that uh the government's going to be hounded by uh, by journalists on the uh the explosive bernardo story of course as it's going going forward um but you know it's it is the summer and you know i think there's uh, a sense that maybe people might be a little bit distracted as they uh, as they begin to move on to their holidays do you think this will go in another direction other than a public inquiry? It seems that, man, this has gone so far that it, the public will accept nothing else. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a really good question. The uh, I think the, the hope from the liberals was, of course, that a special rapporteur would come in and would do some investigating yeah. and, and would get to the bottom of this. And, and that clearly did not did not work. Right. That, you know, I think the that did not work the way that they had wanted it. To, to do. And there's still a lot of interest in this story. Whether or not they're prepared to go for a full-blown public inquiry, they haven't committed to that yet. Um, but I think they're probably watching this sort of as much as, as we are about how much interest remains in the story to f and whether or not it becomes politically impossible to do anything else. I don't think they're at that point yet, but it looks like there is undoubtedly discussions that are going on about whether or not that's something they're ultimately going to have to do. Don't you think Canadians will just become more angry over this over time rather than forget? I mean, it's not like it's a one or two issue thing and this is a long string of stuff here well, I mean, it's certainly what the opposition is uh, hoping for, right? I mean, the conservatives have, have made as much use of these stories as they can and tried to put as much uh, put as much of a spotlight as they as they can on the 
question of Chinese electoral interference and the Bernardo story and trying to keep that very much in the headlines. There's a hope that this is going to keep uh, keep the pressure up. Uh, I mean, whether or not the people remain as tuned in, uh, I think that'll partially depend on whether or not there's any more revelations that are yet to come or or more information that comes comes out on these stories. Um, but I think for right now, the liberals seem like they're kind of hoping that this will uh, will will settle down. But whether or not that's going to happen, we'll have to see. Uh, so uh, is it safe to say then, Andrew, there'll be no real progress on any of these issues over the course of the summer? It's on hold until the fall or will there be work behind the scenes on this stuff? Oh, I don't think it's not like anyone's not working on stuff. I mean, the House is now broken for the summer. People have gone back to see their constituents again. This is a normal part of the parliamentary yeah. calendar. This was expected. And and it's not it's not like people just stop working or anything. I mean, this is often a very important time for politicians to go back and, you know, do the barbecue circuit and, you know, meet with the people that elected them and find out what they're talking about and then kind of come back and report back in September. So it, it's not like this is wasted time from that perspective. They are actually out finding out what's going on going on uh, so they'll a lot of this in the civil service of course is still working you know uh, on, on on stuff so it, it's not like the the end of the the summer break brings all of this to a halt um, but it, it uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of weeks and uh, whether or not there are more news to come on some of these stories that will change the picture Andrew McDougall with us, Assistant Professor, Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto, House of Commons, done until the end of summer. Andrew, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've been watching since Sunday the uh, story of the Titan submersible on its way to Titanic, uh, to the Titanic uh, with five uh, people on board. And an hour and 45 minutes into its journey, uh, the mothership loses contact with it. And we're all hoping for the next 90 hours or so that uh, the oxygen will hold out. Uh, earlier this morning, a debris field was found in confirmation uh, this afternoon from Coast Guard that uh, the wreckage of the Titan has been found, um, signaling a catastrophic implosion of some sort and all feared dead. Let's bring in Kyle Denning, Network Digital Broadcast Journalist for Global News, updating the story and is here now. Kyle, thanks for the time. Uh, what is the latest on all of this? Um, it, obviously, the debris field found this morning and then later identified as part of the Titan. Well, and, and that's just it. There's so many unanswered questions that we're still trying to figure out. But what we do know is that the debris field was found. Uh, everything that the U.S. Coast Guard said in its press conference today uh, sounds like this implosion took place before Tuesday, because on Tuesday is when uh, Canadian aircraft released sonar buoys into the water. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, the Coast Guard said any kind of explosion of that magnitude would have been caught by the buoys. So um, this implosion happened between Tuesday when those buoys went in the water and when the mothership lost contact uh, with with the submersible. So uh, a, a lot of unanswered questions, but it sounds like the the investigation teams will still remain out there. It sounds like the ROVs will still be scouring to try and figure out what exactly happened. And, and there's still a, a lot of things that people want to know specifically about this story. You bring up a valid point, Kyle, um, that, uh, you know, many were concerned over the last 90 hours what this would be like for this poor crew in there had they still been alive and then the, the air supply obviously running out. But, and again, we don't know, but this could very well have ended for them at the one hour and 45 minute mark when they actually lost contact. That's very true. And, and that's my reading of it is it's somewhere in that period before uh, all the ground resource or sorry all the mm. ships and and all the resources yeah. involved in this sort of search and rescue got onto scene and the point where contact was lost there's a, a a lot of unknowns here but based on everything that we're hearing it's it's in that period where something happened because uh the sounds that were captured by the buoys it sounds like it was something unrelated to to this search and rescue operation so um uh, a lot of unknowns and and I, I guess a lot of scrutiny will be held at this company for the sort of manufacturing of this of this submersible and and issues around it and and questions raised about regulatory uh, issues because mm. it didn't have to pass anything in order to be safe to go underwater and search at these kind of depths where so much pressure and so many things could go wrong and I think we've seen several news packages come up one by CBS this morning that was done a few years ago that this 
machinery is is sort of controlled by a controller for a video game console. So yeah. a lot of questions still uh, still have to be answered. Do we know, Kyle, why there didn't seem to be, you know, somebody said it's, it's not certified, this, that, or the other. How does this, how is this operation allowed to play in the gray area? Um, what do we know about whether there was approval or there wasn't, or, or was it a gray area? I think it was a gray area because it doesn't quite fall under a ship because it's submersive. It doesn't quite right. fall as a submarine because it's not a submarine, it's a submersive where, or a submersible where five people are sort of in the size of a minivan and there aren't any other tools available. So I think it's that gray area that exists that allowed it to sort of go on and operating on Canadian soil, I might add. This this organization is based in, in Newfoundland and, and works with other Canadian companies as well. Uh, and it's something now that it's received this much notoriety and the whole world was on edge seeing if we could beat this timeline of 96 hours of saving this group of five um, has, has raised a lot more more questions about how this was even able to happen in the first place. Uh, no mention, or was there mention of recovery of bodies? Uh, assume that, you know, considering the pressure down there, um, I, I don't know, is it possible to recover bodies? So that's one of the questions that was asked, and, and it's uh, another one that will remain unanswered. But I, I think for families' closure, I think they're hoping to try and recover bodies and, and return them to families so they can hold services and and, and sort of, continue with that sort of grieving process and and it's one less unknown if if they're able to retrieve the bodies the issue is is because of the depth they were found they were only the the wreckage was only found about half a kilometer away from the wreckage mm-hmm. of the titanic so they were very mm-hmm. close where the wreckage the, the debris field was actually found um whether they imploded there is another question but because of the pressure at that depth in the atlantic yeah. ocean uh yeah. it, it's it's unclear whether whether the bodies will be recovered uh, any more on the company involved in all of this? Like you said, perhaps um, doing business in a gray area, but now uh, we've lost five people. I can't imagine the cost of a search of this size. What, where, what's the future of this company? Yeah, well, the, one of the five people on board was the, the company's CEO and founder. Uh, and, and so without him sort of being there and him sort of being the face of this, and we've seen him in, in media reports over the last two years, it's it's going to be a real question about how this moves forward. But also another question is for uh, another Canadian company, the the one operating the Polar Prince, which helped get the submersible to this spot. Um, they're mm. obviously linked with them as well. So uh, they took questions from reporters yesterday. Um, there is a, a, a some scrutiny on them as well, because apparently there was an eight-hour delay between losing contact with the submersible and then notifying the U.S. Coast Guard. So mm. there'll, there'll be further questions, reviews, investigations into why there was that eight-hour period before alarm bells were uh, raised and, and questions about what happens with both of these organizations going forward. So, uh, Kyle, I know information is obviously scarce, but what, what is next from what you heard? How long do they stay? What, any, any sort of indication there? So it sounds like there are still nine ships on the water and, and quite a large area here looking, but... Um, today they got some more uh, ROVs. That's uh, remotely operated vehicles. Those came in from France, uh, and I believe they have four on site now. And those will be going through the debris fields. Obviously, they're remotely operated, so they're operated from the ships on the surface and allowed to de- dive down without concern of human life going under the surface. And and we'll try and retrieve what they can and see what led to this implosion. But uh, just sort of trying to capture this, uh, whether it's through images or actually bringing some of the debris back up to the surface is is going to be quite difficult, as I imagine an implosion will spread things out. But um, this sounds like this investigation will go on for quite a while. It doesn't sound like any resources have have necessarily left in terms of uh, ships and, and sonar and, and those uh, ROVs, but they will be there for at least the next few days. Kyle Benning with us, Network Digital Broadcast Journalist, Global News, giving us the latest on the missing Titan submersible, which was on its way to Titanic uh, to see the wreckage when uh, a catastrophic implosion incurred. Kyle, thanks so much for the time. Uh, Very much appreciated. Be well. Always a pleasure, Scott. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. It seems that uh, 
Um, doing the, the shift that I'm doing, it's been right in the heart of all of the stories that are happening uh, in regard to the, uh, the submersible and such with just as we're coming on the air, uh, the uh, Coast Guard holding a news conference saying that, uh, in fact, it looks, it appears as if uh, this submarine, the submersible, actually imploded. And this could have really all been over, probably was, and I don't know, uh, at about an hour and 45 minutes in when they actually lost contact uh, with it. Amazing how this story gripped the world. It, it reminded me of the Chilean mine disaster when I remember sitting at like one o'clock in the morning watching the last guy go out. Mm. Uh, it's amazing how these stories capture our attention. You know, one of the things that has been uh, pointed out on social media and other places is look at all the attention that's given to this one because there's a bunch of billionaires or a couple billionaires, but migrants who are coming over from Haiti or Jamaica mm. or wherever, they don't get the same attention when their boat sinks. And I mm, get, I point. get, I get the sentiment of that one, but I think it's not quite an apples to apples comparison. And it's for the very reason you just cited with the mine thing. When the migrants boat sank, that's a horrendous tragedy, but there's no like, there's no possibility of saving anyone in this case. And in the mining one, you've got an ongoing race to try and save somebody. It is different. I don't think you can make the same comparison and say, we care more about billionaires because we cared every bit as much about those miners. And remember the kids, the soccer kids or whatever it was. Yes, and, yes. Yep. You know, so I, I don't, I really, I think it's missing a point a little bit. I think it's the, the horror of the reality that you've got people. We didn't know this until just now about that. It may have happened immediately, but the idea that these people are trapped somewhere and we're racing against time to try and yeah. figure out how to save them. Interesting, too, how uh, on social media some, and, you know, you're going to get this, and I'm talking about the extremes, uh, where, you know, they're rich people, they shouldn't have been down there in the first place, blah, 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 blah. It's amazing how, and we saw the same sort of thing when we, you know, millionaires were blasting up into space and going around the edge of the atmosphere and such. Um, Does it matter if you're rich or poor? Surely, Scott, we are capable of a little bit of humanity and saying, Mm -hmm. Whether you're a billionaire or whether you're not, this would be, assuming, and again, we don't know, it sounds like this didn't happen, but if in fact the story that we had believed all along that they were trapped somewhere and banging on the wall of the thing, whatever, surely we can understand as humans, whether you have billions of dollars or no dollars, how terrifying that would be. We can have the discussion about whether this is a good idea for people to do this or was this thing safe? Those, those discussions we can have for a long, long time after. Let's at least show some humanity to other people. I, 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 I've been, quite honestly, Scott, we talked about this on my show the other day. I, I've been disgusted by a lot of the stuff, the, the almost reveling, the almost, mm. the almost joyful yeah. fact, oh, these are billionaires, look at these. And it doesn't matter. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Billionaires get cancer. Billionaires get diseases. Should we root for them to die first because they're billionaires and we don't like that they have lots of money? That that that's to me that's gross. Other big story: uh, the families of Tim Bosma and Mm, Laura Babcock speaking up because of all the attention that the Bernardo story has gotten with him being moved from a. Uh, maximum to a medium security prison. A while ago, uh, Mark Smitch was moved from maximum to medium uh, security facility as well. And you have to think, if they're moving Bernardo, how long before they move Dellen Millard? Uh, Jen McQueen was just in the newsroom saying, maybe we need to now do a roll call of all the serial killers, because chances Mm. are they're all by now in medium security. And and here's the the thing about this, Scott, that I don't really get. If... this can, to me, the only reason you move someone from maximum to medium security is if this is a step towards something. Yeah. And and I know that people say, oh, come on, there's no chance Paul Bernardo is ever going to get some kind of day parole or something. Yeah, but you would have probably said there's no chance that he was going to go from his maximum security prison to exactly. medium security. Exactly. So, so, you know, do should I believe, should I give absolute have absolute comfort in the word of the probation, the parole department, the department of corrections, whatever you call it. Should I believe without question now that there is no chance that the day will come that Paul Bernardo or Dellen Millard or Mark Smith might not get a pass to go out into public, even if it's supervised. If you're moving them down this path, it's towards some kind of end. 
And it's towards the idea that we're rehabilitating and reintroducing. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm just a caveman, Scott, but there are certain people in our society who I am not on board with this whole thing that it should be about rehabilitation. For many, many people who are in prison, sure. Yeah. But others... No, it should be, quite frankly... No, not once you're branded a psychopath. Yeah, I mean, come on. There are a few. It's a few, but there are a few that should be in there, locked up, and it should be punitive. I don't care about if you say, well, no, prison isn't about punishment. For some people, it should be about punishment. I'm sorry, it should. And Paul Bernardo and these two, absolutely, this should be punishment as well as locking them up. And I just I just don't understand the thinking that says, well, maybe, maybe we can fix them. No, you can't. No, you can't. I guess they feel that's their job and you shouldn't stand in the way, Scott. Scott it can, be their, it can be their job for 98% of the people in prison, yeah, but there is yeah. a small percentage that are beyond that. I agree. All right, Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, thanks for the time. Have a good one. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. Uh, This one from David on a summer election. Hello, Scott. I heard you and your guests talking about a summer election. David Peterson called one in 1990, and it turned out to be a lucky day for Bob Ray as he was elected Ontario's one and only NDP premier. Maybe Jugmeet Singh pulls the plug on his bromance with Justin, and he could repeat Bob Ray's stunning upset of the Ontario Liberals, say Dave. That's it. Just keep right except to pass. 99. 99- 